Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. Another partial government shutdown averted just in the nick of time. Hear lawmakers' reactions and what the move means for the months ahead. Hunter Biden testifies he was under the influence when he name-dropped his father, demanding payment from a Chinese business partner on WhatsApp. Takeaways from the first son's closed-door deposition after the transcript release. Federal prosecutors want a trial date set in the classified documents case against former President Trump. Trump's lawyers argue he can't get a fair trial during his presidential campaign. A judge hearing arguments from both sides today. Dueling visits at the border with contrasting backdrops. What cases are President Biden and former President Trump each making while visiting border towns in Texas? Utah lawmakers are combating the Chinese regime's heinous practice of forced organ harvesting for profit. A state bill aims to protect Americans from being involved. We speak to a researcher about those efforts and Beijing's crimes against humanity. Meta has been accused of carrying out massive and illegal data processing, while the pace of inflation looks like it's slowing down. We look at that and more with the host of NTD Business, it's the Big Apple for a reason. A global media company is taking its hat off to New York City, bestowing an esteemed title. A professor on what makes this megapolis sparkle. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome everyone. Today is Friday, March 1st. Yeah, kicking off a new month. And you know, we talk about the concerns of the government going month to month on its funding, but this is week to week. March 8th is just next Friday. That's right. A lot on the line. It, it would have been air traffic controllers working without pay and SNAP benefits running out if there wouldn't have been a um, if, if there would have been a shutdown. Yeah, there's a lot at stake, that's for sure. And you know, hopefully Congress can get those full year budget funding bills finalized with this extra time they have. That's right. And today's top news, the Senate yesterday approved a short-term stopgap spending bill to avert a partial governmental shutdown. This after the Republican-controlled House backed it with less than 36 hours before funding would have run out. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the vote. The bill passed the Senate in a bipartisan vote. The yeas are 77, the nays are 13, and the bill is passed. And will now go to President Biden's desk for signing into law. It will set deadlines to fund one part of the government by March 8th and the other portion by March 22nd. In a statement, Biden said the passage was good news for Americans because it avoids a damaging shutdown, but added, this is a short-term fix, not a long-term solution. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer expressed gratitude for the deal. When we pass this bill, we will have, thank God, avoided a shutdown with all its harmful effects on the American people. Earlier on Thursday, the House approved the short-term stopgap measure in a 320 to 99 vote. Some Republican lawmakers were critical of the spending bill approval. It's just more of the same, I and mean, people kind of grow accustomed to, um, you know, Washington doing what Washington does. In this game, you got to stack up your fights. You got to stack up your strategies. And, um, and uh, that's something that's what we accomplished here. I'm going to say the same thing I've always said: Republicans and Democrats alike are spending too damn much. Period. 
The extension buys Congress more time to agree on funding for the full fiscal year that began October 1st. Even with passage of Thursday's temporary funding bill, Congress still faces potential battles during the next few years over funding levels for many programs that conservatives want to pare back. House Speaker Mike Johnson had been pressured by some Republicans to use a shutdown as a bargaining chip. This to force Democrats to accept provisions to restrict the flow of illegal migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Here with us now to discuss the steps to keep the government funded is Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you for your time this morning, Lawrence. Now that the stopgap measure delays a shutdown deadline, will this issue be used by lawmakers to force some concessions the next time around this month? A short answer is probably not. Uh, the reason that they were able to pass this stopgap, this is the fourth one, unbelievably, of this fiscal year. The reason they were even able to do it is that they already reached agreement on the top line spending and the major questions. So now this two week and, and three week period uh, for some of the bills is going to be just about dotting the I's, crossing the T's, writing the actual legislation, letting everybody review it. But the deal has been made, so it likely will not force another crisis uh, on the 8th and then again on the 22nd. Yeah, and if we look back to last spring, President Biden worked with then House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to rein in this federal spending a little bit in exchange for getting that debt limit problem resolved here. What happens later in March now that the deadlines have been extended? Well, uh, <laughs> rinse and repeat. Uh, if they are able to get this all accomplished by the end of March or by uh, March 22nd, which seems likely now, then they're already a month behind in figuring out the next fiscal year's budget. That's the 2025 fiscal year budget. So that process was supposed to start uh, on at, in February uh, this last month when the president sent a budget to Congress. He notified them that's going to be late. They won't get the budget proposal till March 11th. They won't even be done with 2024 spending. So they've got to get right back at it. Not to mention uh, FISA renewal is still up in the air. That was punted till uh, April. Uh, there's so much to be done. Congress is going to be very busy, but they want to dive right in on next year's spending. Yeah, now we have an agreement after negotiators worked on that full year appropriations bill to get the interior, justice, veterans affairs, all those funding for those divisions. And that has to be enacted prior to March 8th. Now, is that set to happen? Yes, that should happen this year's funding for 2024, that is, the fiscal year ending September 30th. That should finally be put to bed on March 8th and then March 22nd when the second bunch of bills uh, would ex would have expired. Okay, so Lawrence, why are the more deeply conservative members of Congress opposed to this short-term solution? Well, I think you heard Nancy Mace, a uh, Republican from South Carolina, say it pretty, uh, pretty emphatically. Uh, she believes, and they believe, Congress is just spending too darn much money. Uh, they want to see spending cuts, and they don't think this budget will do nearly enough to do that. Also, some of them are pretty upset. Chip Roy of Texas said this quite a bit in the last week or so. Uh, we had only one piece of leverage, which was the threat to shut down the government uh, in working on the border crisis. 
And if we give that away, then nothing's going to happen on the border. So uh, they really want to see action on the border and deeper cuts to spending. And they think that's just not going to happen now. Okay, so Lawrence, just in a few seconds here, what's the solution for a long-term resolution to this whole problem of just having to go constantly extending these deadlines? Well, the solution would be to get back to what's called regular order in the Congress, which is putting all 12 appropriations bills through committees, let congressmen and women have their say on them, and then get them all passed by September 30th. That's the solution. Otherwise, it's just going to be one deadline after another that Congress keeps missing. All right, Lawrence Wilson, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you for coming on the show. And the transcript of Hunter Biden's closed-door deposition was released last night. The first son repeatedly denied under oath that his father ever financially benefited or participated in any of his business ventures. Republicans dug in on his work for foreign clients in countries like China and Ukraine. And the House panel investigating President Biden and his family is searching for any evidence of corruption or influence peddling during Biden's time as VP. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has takeaways from Hunter Biden's deposition. Good morning. GOP investigators in a close to seven hour long private interview with Hunter Biden Wednesday asked about dinners and meetings with business partners where he put his father on speakerphone. The younger Biden said it was nothing nefarious, stating after the death of his mother and two siblings, calls in his family are always answered no matter what. Hunter Biden acknowledged his past drug addiction under questioning from Congressman Matt Gates. He told the panel he's been in recovery for over four years and pushed back, asking what it had to do with impeachment. The first son testified he was out of his mind, drunk, and probably high when he name-dropped his father in a 2017 WhatsApp message demanding payment from a Chinese business associate. He told lawmakers his father was not actually sitting next to him as he said in the text, and insisted he didn't recall sending it in the first place. Republicans drilled down on what they describe as selling the Biden brand to clients overseas. Hunter Biden's former business associate, Devin Archer, testified last year the president's family sold the illusion of access to power in Washington. The panel asked Hunter Biden what value he brought to Ukrainian energy firm Burisma in 2014, and if the company wanted him on its board because his father was VP. He said he didn't think that would be a fair assessment, then talked about the scope of his resume. He also challenged Republicans to prove that he sent money to his father, other than a car loan repayment. When asked about a 2017 email proposing a $10 million stake in a firm be held for the big guy, Hunter Biden said it was a pie in the sky and testified he does not remember fully reading or responding to the email. He says he only knows what was executed in the agreement and stated it didn't involve his father. Hunter Biden also testified he does not remember bringing a laptop into a Delaware repair shop, stating if he needed repairs he would have gone to the Apple store. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the next step in the GOP impeachment inquiry will be a public hearing with Hunter Biden. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Special Counsel Jack Smith is asking to move the trial date for the classified documents case against former President Trump to July 8th. District Judge Eileen Cannon will consider arguments and is expected to address the trial date at a hearing today. Trump's lawyers told the judge yesterday he believes he can't get a fair trial this year due to campaign obligations. Trump's team is suggesting an August 12th trial start date. An attorney for a co-defendant has proposed a September trial. Cannon has already pushed back several pre-trial deadlines, but said she would wait until Friday to consider moving the schedule May 20th trial. 
Trump has pleaded not guilty to 40 federal counts accusing him of retaining sensitive national security documents after leaving office and obstructing government efforts to retrieve them. He's also due to face trial in state court in New York starting March 25th in the so-called hush money case. It's not clear if the GOP frontrunners' other cases will go to trial before the November general election. And the federal judge in Eugene Carroll's defamation case is expected to make a decision soon on Trump's request to delay an $83 million judgment. Carroll's lawyers told the judge yesterday Trump should not be given more time to post the money she was awarded. Carroll's attorneys argue Trump is simply asking the court to trust him without giving any information on his finances and assets. They accuse him of being the least trustworthy of borrowers in their filing. A final verdict on damages was made on February 8th, giving Trump 30 days to pay out the award. Trump's team asked the judge last Friday to delay judgment while he appeals or to allow him to post less, like one-third or half. Trump would need to post bond in about two weeks on the current schedule and needs to pay the court of the full amount in order to appeal. The money would be held while the appeal plays out. And Trump will remain on the Illinois primary ballot pending an appeal. A judge issued a new order yesterday, clarifying the duration of a pause on her decision to disqualify him. The judge first stayed her removal order until March 1st, anticipating an appeal or pending a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Colorado case. She stated the removal order is on hold until the appeal is resolved. And coming up, dueling trips to the border with contrasting backdrops. What cases are President Biden and former President Trump each making while visiting border towns in Texas? A reporter has an on-the-ground update on yesterday's events. The Georgia State House passed a bill yesterday requiring police across the state to identify and arrest illegal immigrants. The move comes after the murder of a 22-year-old nursing student. And consumer rights groups have accused Meta of carrying out a massive and illegal operation, allegedly collecting data from hundreds of millions of users and fueling a surveillance-based ad system. NTD business host Don Ma joins us to discuss after this short break. Good to have you back with us. President Biden and former President Trump made dueling visits to the border yesterday. Speaking separately in two Texas towns, what did they each accomplish on the trips? And today's White House correspondent Iris Tao has a story. Good morning to you, Evelyn. Biden and Trump, though both being at the border, presented very different messages and also with very different backdrops. President Trump, who was in Eagle Pass, where there have been thousands of migrant encounters in just the past few days, accused President Biden of causing the border crisis. It's a Biden invasion over the past three years. I call him Crooked Joe because he's crooked. He's a terrible president, the worst president our country's ever had. Biden, meanwhile, offered a rare branch of olive to Trump, calling on Trump to join him in urging Congress to pass a controversial border deal. Instead of telling members of Congress to block this legislation, join me, or I'll join you in telling the Congress to pass this bipartisan border security bill. 
And talking about the backdrops, unlike Eagle Pass, the border town that Biden visited has seen a large decrease in illegal crossings in the past few months. And Trump highlighting that contrast. But they went to the wrong area. They went to an area that the governor and myself have done a good job on, and there's essentially nobody coming through. So, you know, you're not seeing it. This area is tough. And the mayor of Brownsville, who was with President Biden as they toured the border, told me that they did not actually see any migrants. We did not see any migrants crossing. Um, it was very tranquil, and uh, we were there for about 15 minutes. Would you think that this would still allow President Biden to see an accurate picture of what's going on along our whole border right now? I think the migrant situation is, is a fluid situation in every border city, right? I think we go through our peaks and valleys. I don't think he was coming here because it was um, that we had relatively low numbers. I, I think it was to show that he wants to get this border security bill passed. And so this was a place that he wanted to do it. And while both Biden and Trump have now wrapped up their competing border trips here, we're sure to see the clash between the two over the issue of the border continue, if not intensify, as we get closer and closer to the November election. Back to you, Evelyn. A federal judge in Texas yesterday suspended a state immigration law set to take effect next Tuesday. The law would have allowed state law enforcement to arrest, jail, and prosecute illegal border crossers. Texas Governor Greg Abbott vowed to appeal. He said Texas has a constitutional right to defend itself and will enforce immigration laws within its borders in the absence of federal enforcement. And the Georgia House passed a bill yesterday that would require the state's police and sheriff's departments to help identify, arrest, and detain illegal immigrants for deportation. This after the murder of a nursing student sparked national outrage and calls for stricter immigration laws. Police have accused a Venezuelan man of killing Lincoln Riley in the University of Georgia campus. Authorities say Jose Ibera illegally entered the U.S. in 2022. The Georgia bill would require local law enforcement agencies to work with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The measure now moves to the state Senate for more debate. And joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give us a briefing on the latest update from the financial world. So Don, let's hear it. Okay, so uh, some really interesting stuff, including Meta being accused of uh, massive and illegal data harvesting, and as well as inflation data that came out yesterday that is uh, quite interesting, and as well as Anheuser-Busch uh, actually losing a billion dollars uh, potentially due to boycotts uh, last year. So let me start off with the biggest one, which is Meta. Uh, so Meta, Meta is allegedly being uh, carrying out a massive and illegal operation of collecting data from hundreds of millions of users. And this is what a European consumer rights group have accused uh, the owner of Facebook and Instagram. So the European Consumer Organization claims uh, that Meta collects an unnecessary amount of information on its users, uh, and such as data used to infer their sexual orientation, emotional state, or even their susceptibility to addiction. And this group alleges that Meta engages in surveillance-based ads system that tracks consumers and gathers vast personal data for the purpose of showing them advertising. And these complaints uh, were filed with their respective National Data Protection Authority yesterday. And uh, Thursday's complaints will potentially expose the company to yet more legal action potentially here. 
Right. Well, the European Union known to be very strict on when it comes to data protection, but at the same time, gathering vast amounts of personal data from Meta is, doesn't come to uh, as a huge surprise, I guess. Um, let's move on and talk about the Bud Light boycott that you um, that you mentioned. So, what did it cost Anheuser Busch? Right. So, it, it reported earnings yesterday, and what we found out is that the world's largest brewer may have lost as much as 1.4 billion dollars in sales and this is likely due in part to the backlash uh, with its partnership with a transgender influencer to promote its bud light beer anheuser-busch reported uh, record revenues for 2023 yesterday and said that its full growth potential was con constrained though in the u.s uh, by its uh, bud light sales tanking after the company's partnership with uh, dylan mulvaney last april uh, sparking backlash and calls for a boycott and because of this it led mexican brand beer uh, Modelo Especial to dethrone Bud Light as America's top selling beer. And Bud Light actually tried to reverse that impact, but uh, from May through February, Bud Light recovered only a fraction of lost market share, and some analysts were not impressed with the recovery disclosed by the company so far uh, because in the U.S., performance uh, remains very underwhelming with revenue down at double-digit rates as the group lost market share. Well, yeah, and to add to that, even the Asia business of Anheuser-Busch, that lost about 7% on closing because they just had this one-off customs charge in South Korea. South Korea, so go figure. What was the new inflation data that came out yesterday? What can you tell us there? Okay, so a quick one on that. The Federal Reserve's preferred inflation gauge came out yesterday, and it eased to the slowest pace in nearly three years. Uh, so... Rising prices continue to loom large in January, but this new data released yesterday showed that inflation is on a downward trend still. And the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index was up 2.4% for the 12 months ending in January. And this is slower compared to December's reading. Goods prices fell. Uh, there were also decreases in the prices of motor vehicles and parts, uh, clothing, footwear, uh, but recreational goods and vehicles cost more, so, so did furnishings and household equipment. Uh, but in summary, the latest uh, reading on the Fed's preferred inflation gauge showed process, uh, progress towards the central bank's target, which is good. Yeah, that sounds like really good news. Um, we just want to touch on one more headline today. So uh, Elon Musk sued ChatGPT's maker OpenAI. What was that all about? Yeah, this uh, just happened yesterday night. Uh, so Elon Musk uh, is suing OpenAI and its CEO Sam Altman, saying that the company has diverged from its original nonprofit mission by partnering with Microsoft for $13 billion and keeping its codes secret. So Musk co-founded OpenAI in 2015, but has since left and has formed his own AI company, XAI. And his complaint filed yesterday in California State Court says that the company uh, violated its founding charter representing a breach of contrast. And Musk is asking for a jury trial for the company, Altman, and co-founder Greg Brockman to pay back profits they received from the business. Well, it's quite the update. Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Stay with us. Contradicting testimony, heat maps revealing late night meetups, all part of the Georgia hearing to disqualify Trump prosecutor and Trump DA Fonnie Willis and her prosecutor. Analysis on what the decision will come down to. 
A federal judge holds journalist Catherine Herridge in contempt of court for refusing to reveal confidential sources. First Amendment activists are raising alarm bells over the decision. Welcome back. We have an update on the hearing to disqualify District Attorney Fannie Willis from former President Trump's election case in Georgia over an alleged conflict of interest surrounding a romantic relationship between Willis and her top prosecutor. Special Prosecutor Nathan Wade's former divorce attorney Terrence Bradley previously said in text messages that Wade and Willis were absolutely in a relationship before she hired him. But in his testimony this week, Bradley said he was only speculating. To learn more about this, we bring in Zach Smith, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Zach, thank you for joining us. Is this what we just mentioned about Bradley's testimony contradicting what he said in a text conversation going to be what this Willis disqualification hangs on? Well, look, the overall issue in this disqualification case is whether or not Fannie Willis had a conflict of interest. We've heard a lot of testimony over multiple days of hearings that she potentially personally benefited from hiring Nathan Wade to pursue this case. Uh, there's been doubt cast on her credibility on the testimony that she's given. Uh, certainly Terrence Bradley and another witness as well uh, pushed back against the notion that Nathan Wade and Fannie Willis did not have a relationship uh, before uh, it, you know, this case against Donald Trump and the others involved in the Georgia election uh, began. Uh, but today, the judge overseeing this hearing is going to hear closing arguments. And I suspect we'll have a decision shortly on whether or not Fannie Willis and her office will be allowed to continue pursuing this case against Donald Trump and the others involved in the Georgia election case. Yeah, this has been a protracted series of hearings here trying to discern exactly what should happen going forward. Now, the cell phone and text logs showing thousands of communications between the two, Wade and Willis, before Wade was hired, is that going to be the critical evidence here that's ultimately going to determine this? I don't know that it will be the critical evidence, but I think it's something that the certainly the lawyers on both sides are going to have to contend with. And essentially what this does, it seems to cast doubt on some of the testimony that both Wade and Willis gave during the course of these hearings. And so I think this, along with the testimony, the other evidence that the judge in this case has heard, certainly provide a, a compelling picture that Wade and Willis have been less than forthcoming. And, and look, regardless of the outcome, whether Fannie Willis is disqualified from pursuing this case, uh, this is certainly a black eye for her and her office uh, and certainly did her no favors uh, for any cases she pursues in the future. Right, Zach, and investigators presented heat maps showing how the, actually Wade was visiting this area where Fannie Willis was, according to those data, and it was to her condo over three times, and he arrived late at night and left early in the morning. Is this going to be used to establish this romantic aspect of the relationship? Well, certainly, you know, one of the key issues at play here is when the romantic relationship between Fannie Willis and Nathan Wade began. Again, they have both asserted it didn't begin until after uh, he had already been hired by her office. There was testimony that contradicted that. And this heat map, I think, is going to try to be used to bolster the credibility of the witnesses uh, that said this relationship began much, much earlier than either Wade or Willis said that it did.
Yeah, this heat map is showing these patterns of these interactions at those evening hours. When Wade's former divorce lawyer, Bradley, he said he couldn't remember crucial details about the relationship, but earlier he had exchanged texts with defense attorney Merchant, who represents a Trump co-defendant, that show he did have knowledge about the relationship. How will the judge interpret that? Well, look, I think this goes to the credibility of Terrence Bradley. Certainly the judge is going to look uh, at those text messages, what he said there, and compare it to his testimony on the stand. Now, what's interesting, I suspect uh, Bradley did not expect those text messages to become public. But once he began uh, slightly changing his testimony, backing off from some of his earlier statements, those text messages then uh, came to light and certainly appeared to show contradictory statements uh, between what he said in those text messages in private and what he was publicly saying on the witness stand. Zach, people around the world are looking at this case and you touched on the potential of, you know, either outcome having an impact. What is going to be the effect on public opinion here following this hearing? Well, look, I think there's many people have been rightly concerned about a two-tiered system of justice, a double standard that's being applied in our criminal justice system today, not only in this case in Georgia, but also in New York and the federal cases against Donald Trump as well. Uh, look, everyone should be treated equally under the law. And unfortunately, I think Fannie Willis in pursuing this case against Donald Trump has not adhered to that standard. And we'll have to wait and see whether she is able to continue pursuing this case against Donald Trump. Uh, but again, her conduct in this case so far, particularly as it pertains to these allegations, uh, has not been has not cast her in a very good light. Zach Smith, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you for weighing in on this. Of course. Thank you for having me on. Should D.A. Fannie Willis be disqualified? You can catch the arguments today and decide for yourself during our special coverage starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time right here on NTD News. And Jack, to Sarah, the Air National Guardsman accused of leaking highly classified military documents is now expected to plead guilty. Prosecutors ask the judge to schedule a change of plea hearing. It's set for Monday at Boston's federal courthouse. Tessera had previously pleaded not guilty to six counts of willful retention and transmission of national defense information. Each count is punishable by up to 10 years in prison. The airman has been behind bars since his arrest in April last year. He's accused of sharing classified military documents about the Russia-Ukraine war and other sensitive national security topics on social media platform Discord. A former U.S. diplomat pleaded guilty yesterday to spying for Cuba. The former ambassador to Bolivia was arrested back in December. Victor Emmanuel Rocha was charged with passing information to the communist regime of Cuba for decades while working for the U.S. State Department. Besides the ambassadorship in Bolivia, he also had top posts in Argentina, Mexico, the White House, and the U.S. interest section in Havana. Rocha initially pleaded not guilty in a Miami court. Yesterday, he unexpectedly reversed course. The 73-year-old is charged with acting as a foreign agent and making false statements to obtain a U.S. passport. According to court documents, during meetings with an undercover FBI agent posing as Cuban intelligence, Rocha repeatedly referred to the U.S. as the enemy and praised Fidel Castro. A judge has held former Fox and CBS correspondent Katherine Herridge in contempt of court after she refused to divulge her sources. 
First Amendment advocates say this could have a chilling effect on journalism. D.C. Judge Christopher Cooper ordered the veteran journalist to pay $800 a day for refusing to reveal her sources for a series of stories from 2017 when she worked for Fox News. Herridge's lawyers said they intend to appeal the decision. Herridge in 2017 reported Chinese-American scientist Yanping Chen was under investigation by the FBI. The report examined Chen's ties to the Chinese military and raised questions about if the scientist was helping the Chinese regime get information on American service members. Chen, who was never charged, accused federal authorities of violating the Privacy Act by improperly leaking information about her. She subsequently filed a lawsuit against the Bureau, citing documents reviewed by Fox News. Chen then subpoenaed Herridge and Fox, hoping to unmask the sources for the stories. Herridge and Fox News appealed to Judge Cooper to have the subpoena quashed. Cooper refused. The judge wrote in Thursday's order, Chen's needs for the requested evidence overcomes Herridge's qualified First Amendment privilege in this case. A spokesperson for Fox News said in a statement, holding a journalist in contempt for protecting a confidential source has a deeply chilling effect on journalism. The case has prompted members of Congress to demand greater protections for journalists. Up next, should insurance companies pay for Americans' organ transplants performed in China while the Chinese regime is harvesting organs from prisoners of conference? Utah lawmakers say no. And police say the death of a shipping industry CEO is under criminal investigation. The sister-in-law of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was found dead in a car earlier this month. A Texas wildfire, now the biggest in state history, with dozens of homes destroyed. Hear what kind of progress firefighters are making against the blaze. The Sierra Nevada region is bracing itself for a massive amount of snow this weekend, as forecasts predict high-speed winds and possible avalanches. Here on NTD Business, we break financial news and give market insights you won't find anywhere else. Don't miss a beat. Tune in on NTD News. It's good to have you back with us. Lawmakers in Utah are advancing a bill aimed at combating a heinous crime overseas and preventing Americans from inadvertently contributing to forced organ harvesting. The bill stops insurance companies from paying for organ transplants performed in China, where the ruling Chinese Communist Party kills prisoners of conscience and steals their organs to support its organ transplant industry. Cynthia Sun, a researcher at the Falun Dafa Information Center, told me more about this. Thank you for your time, Kevin. And honestly, this legislation introduced by Utah, in the larger context, I would say it's incredibly important and it follows in the footsteps of Texas and Arizona who have legislation of their own to target forced organ harvest in China. And when it comes to issues affecting Americans, I would say that forced organ harvesting really targets Americans in the most nefarious fashion. Imagine your mother or your father needs a life-saving transplant and they're recommended by their doctors or other people that they trust to go to China for reverse matching, which can get them a heart, a lung, a kidney within two to four weeks, as opposed to years, right, in America. And 
I really think that more Americans need to wake up to this, and the Utah legislation provides just that, a way for Americans to say, no, I don't know where my organs are coming from, I don't want to take another person's life just for this, and I don't, I refuse to participate in the CCP's persecution. And a little background on this, Cynthia. Han Yu of New York, she told Utah lawmakers at a committee hearing she believed that her father was a victim of this organ trafficking. He was healthy, then he was detained, died in detention in China in 2004. His body came back, it was extremely thin, he had stitches from throat to abdomen, there was blocks of ice underneath it. The police said that it was because of an autopsy, but she said her family never authorized an autopsy. She later found out that the Chinese regime kills people for their organs in order to boost up their transplant industry. So this is just really just terrible here. What's the scale that the Chinese regime operates this organ trafficking on? I mean, just to your point, right, um, many estimate that this industry is a billion dollar per annum industry, this murder for profit. Um, and on top of Hanyu's story, which is incredibly sad and incredibly gruesome to hear, in the past year, I've interviewed dozens of survivors from you know prisons in China who have recently escaped to different regions around the world, and they're all Falun Gong practitioners who share a similar story. While they were detained in custody, while they were being tortured, they were actually forced to have blood tests and physical examination. And this is something that's unheard of because they would call Falun Gong practitioners individually and not all people in custody. So it was definitely something that was targeted it was something that was intentional. Just briefly here, Cynthia, what can people do if they are concerned? Are there petitions they can sign or anything like that? Yeah, there's petitions all over. Um, N Transplant Abuse has petitions, but I would honestly recommend people to just tell people about it because if there isn't a supply for organs in China, then there will be no more killing of Falun Gong practitioners and other innocent prisoners of conscience like these for organs. So if you just talk to your um, family members who are in need of life-saving transplants. If you inform your hospital, if you work at a hospital or school, then I think if word gets around, I think that's something that could potentially be more powerful than legislation itself. Cynthia Sun, researcher at the Falun Dafa Information Center, thank you so much for your update on this. Thank you. Police are investigating the death of shipping CEO Angela Chow earlier this month. Chow is the sister-in-law of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Chow, the CEO of Foremost Group, was found dead on February 11th. Police say her body was pulled out of a car that had gone into a pond that was on a private ranch about 40 miles from Austin. The preliminary investigation indicated her death was accidental, but Blanco County Sheriff's Office said they had not ruled out criminal activity. The letter did not say whether there was any evidence Chow died because of a crime, just that a criminal investigation is underway. The ranch where Chow was found dead is owned by a corporate entity connected to her husband, venture capitalist Jim Breyer. A new Florida law intends to pull back the curtain on what happened in the Jeffrey Epstein grand jury inquiry nearly two decades ago. Governor Ron DeSantis signed the bill yesterday. The governor says the new law would effectively compel courts to release the testimonies of Epstein's victims for the first time. 
In 2006, the Palm Beach Police Department asked the state attorney to charge Epstein with multiple felonies, including unlawful sexual activity with a minor. The state attorney chose to present the evidence to a grand jury, which means all who came forward and the testimonies they shared would be kept secret. DeSantis signed the bill in the presence of two of Epstein's victims. He posted on X that nobody should be above the law, regardless of wealth, status, or connections. The public deserves to know who participated in Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking operation, and the survivors deserve justice. And a lockdown on the Maryland State House triggered by a security threat was lifted after officials found no signs of suspicious activity. The House was locked down for about two hours yesterday following an anonymous phone threat. People inside were asked to shelter in place while law enforcement searched the building and grounds. Reporters and some staff members were evacuated. Annapolis police said they didn't receive any reports of violence and no one had taken credit for the threat. And a wildfire spreading across the Texas panhandle has become the largest in state history. The Smokehouse Creek fire grew yesterday to nearly 1,700 square miles of scorched land. The inferno is one of three fires burning in the region with no end in sight. Authorities have not said what ignited the blaze. It's burned since Monday and expanded in size with ferocious speed. The fire has torn through dozens of homes and officials say the full extent of the damage remains unknown. At least two people have died. And more intense weather over in California. Parts of the state could see up to 10 feet of snow by this weekend. The Sierra Nevada region is bracing for a multi-day blizzard. It's expected to begin Thursday night and last until Sunday. Weather forecasts show Donner Pass could see 5 to 10 feet of snow by the time the blizzard ends. Lake Tahoe could see 3 to 6 feet of snow. These locations could also experience wind gusts of 50 to 100 miles per hour for three days. This is while wind swept rain soaks the coastal areas of California. Weather forecasters are warning of the danger of avalanches. And coming up, it's the Big Apple for a reason. A global media company is taking its hat off to New York City, bestowing an esteemed title. A professor on what makes this megalopolis sparkle. And now for some New York City appreciation. We're actually so lucky to be located in the city of dreams. Yes, the Empire City has so much to offer and it's being recognized for that. Oh, really? So what's what's going on in the concrete jungle? Join us on the streets of the city that never sleeps to find out. Right now, I'm in the best city in the world, according to Time Out's annual ranking. It credits New York City with its excellent food and entertainment, exciting exhibits, and fun neighborhoods. For some of the many reasons why this metropolis is great, catch a snapshot of my conversation with distinguished professor of civil engineering emeritus at the City College of New York, Robert Paswell. I'll call it diversity of diversities. Diversity now has taken on just diversity of people, different different kinds of people. But it's diversity of cuisines, diversity of professions, diversity of art, diversity of music, diversity of neighborhoods, uh, walking on the sidewalk. They have different kinds of bakeries every place. They have 
uh, people from all over the world as part of your uh, of your your own groups. Professor Paswell, that's such a good point. And Time Out notes even the Chinese Lunar New Year Parade in Chinatown as one of the reasons why it ranked it top in the world for the best cities. What is it about urban life in New York City that really makes it one of the best places to live? Well, urban life, uh, we've lived in suburbs, we've lived in, in cities, but we've, my wife and I both grew up in cities, so we're very urban people. Ur urban life gets back to the fact and, and it's, it's, in fact, the, the French have just discovered it. They call it the 15-minute city. That within your apartment, in 15 minutes, you can get everything you need in one day. Well, something important to note here is that 15% of timeout survey respondents said that they would move to New York City in the snap of the fingers. So how does New York City compare to other cities around the world? Well, I like New York. It's, it's, all cities are different. You walk through the streets of New York, you feed off of the energy that's there whether it's cars honking or the lights changing too quickly. Some locals and visitors share their experience with the city. I just moved here for college and I'm already in love with the whole city. I visited sometimes and I love it that it's an epicenter of opportunities. There's everything. There's something to do everywhere. I couldn't imagine getting bored here. Like, oh, and the food. The food's so good. Love the food. Like you can find your niche, find your clique and find where you belong. All I knew of New York before I got here yesterday was from the movies. And I expected people to be surly and unpleasant and everybody's been friendly and wonderful and helpful and I love it. Is it a little pricey? Is it a little overpriced? For sure, but like uh, I would, my money spent, my money is better spent here than anywhere else. New York City has taught me a certain worth ethic. I feel like if you've lived in New York and worked in New York, there's really no other city that can tear you down. This city brings, builds confidence. It's hard to beat numero uno, but how can the so-called capital of the world improve? Paswell says public transit always needs improvement, and there is modernization to be done and points to the growth of computer science and artificial intelligence to be used for better planning in the future. Yeah, of course, every city has its issues to deal with and things to update. There is, it's probably a subjective topic, right? But there is a lot of upsides of being in this city. And it sounds like it's living up to its hype. Yeah, absolutely. And it's great opportunities. And even according to bestcolleges.com, transportation, sales, administration, those are all careers that are really in demand in New York City all right, right now. All right. Diversity. All right. Um, we are heading to a quick one-minute break, but we'll be right back. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD.
Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are our top stories. President Biden and former President Trump both at the southern border to address the illegal immigration crisis. Our reporter has on the ground updates on the visits. Another partial government shutdown averted just in the nick of time. Hear lawmakers reactions and what the move means for the months ahead. Hundreds of billions of dollars in frozen Russian assets potentially used to help Ukraine. That's what a top European Union official is proposing. But is it legal? An expert weighs in. Hunter Biden testifies he was under the influence when he name-dropped his father, demanding payment from a Chinese business partner on WhatsApp, takeaways from the first son's closed-door deposition after the transcript release. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome, everyone. Today is Friday, March 1st. Yes, and with former President Trump and President Biden at the border, Trump is blaming Biden directly for the border crisis. Right. There's a lot of blame being traded, of course, with um, Biden also not having ex haven't issued an executive order yet, but also Biden really trying hard to turning the tables here. And we have more on this topic as the top story. Yes. Reactions are coming in this morning after former President Trump and President Biden visited the southern border yesterday. Entity's Arian Pastar joins us now live from Eagle Pass, Texas. Arian, what are people saying? Yeah, good morning, Kevin. So I think the biggest thing people are talking about today is the number of illegal border crossings, right? Here in Eagle Pass, where Trump was, and then also down in Brownsville, which Biden visited. So here in Eagle Pass, we do still see over a thousand illegal border crossings every day. Meanwhile, down in Brownsville, that's around 20. So that's one of the reasons why people say that Biden's visit there was just a publicity stunt. Now, Trump is taking these accusations a step further, saying that, you know, Biden actually caused the immigration crisis. I want to show you what else Trump said. Let's now take a look at his remarks as he was here right in Shelby Park yesterday. This is a Joe Biden invasion. This is a Biden invasion over the past three years. If you look at uh, Arizona, they haven't done anything there. Governor hasn't done a thing, and the governor of California hasn't done a thing. People are flowing through there like nothing, but Texas is very secure and it's going to be even more secure by the time you finish, which will be soon. And, and you know what you just saw Trump saying about California, this comes as the number of illegal border crossings is going down here in Texas, but it's now increasing in California. Kevin? Yeah, Arian, and Trump gave remarks at Shelby Park. This area has kind of been at the center of the border standoff between the state of Texas and the Biden administration. Do you have any updates on that? Yeah, so the standoff, there is a pretty big update, actually. Just yesterday, a federal judge blocked or struck down a state law, a Texas state law, which gave local law enforcement the ability to arrest illegal immigrants. The law was known as Senate Bill 4, and it was pretty new. Abbott, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, just signed it in December. Now, Abbott already responded to the judge's decision to strike down this law. Abbott says he will, first of all, appeal the decision. And he also wants the Supreme Court to pick up this case. Abbott says he is confident that the high court would side with Texas in this matter. Lastly, the White House also responded. They say they welcome the judge's decision to strike down the Texas law. Kevin. 
Yes, and the federal government has the obligation to protect the United States and secure its border. But, of course, the situation has warranted Texas to take matters into its own hands. Lots of watch here. Arian, thank you so much for your update. And Trump actually told Fox News after the visit that Biden had gone to the wrong area. Trump said Brownsville, where Biden visited, is an area that Governor Greg Abbott had done a good job on. And joining us now to hear more about this is Javier Palomares. He is a founder and CEO of the U.S. Hispanic Business Council. Good morning, Javier. Good to see you this morning. So first, tell us a little bit more about the cities that the two presidents chose to visit. What's the reasoning behind it, do you think, and what do you make? What do you make of the choice? Well, thanks for having me, Evelyn. And yeah, I think the the dueling visits underscore uh, that immigration has, in fact, become a top issue in American politics. Uh, we saw immigration was a top issue in New Hampshire. It was a top issue in uh, in Iowa. It was a top issue in South Carolina, and I suspect it will continue to be the top issue in states like California and Tuesday, I'm sorry, and Texas on Super Tuesday. Now, Biden is trying to really turn the tables here on this, what many call, you know, his political liability. So how do you think he did this time around? Well, you know, I, I think uh, if you look at the dueling uh, visits, uh, Biden focused, you know, on administration, uh, on legislation, on on the uh, allocation of personnel and resources. Uh, he met with various agencies and, and officers. Uh, in contrast, he, he walked the border, by the way, which I, I think was great. In contrast, Trump also walked the border, also met with agencies and personnel. But Trump uh, really kind of, his remarks were focused on the tougher policies he had when he was president. And he equated, you know, the border crisis almost to a war. And so two different approaches in the case of President Biden. I'm not sure that the visit did much to help his case. I mean, if you if you think about it uh, at this juncture um, under President Biden, almost seven million people have crossed uh, the border illegally into the United States. Now, if you look at that number, seven million, it is larger than the populations of Alaska, of Delaware, of the District of Columbia, of North Dakota, South Dakota, uh, Vermont and Wyoming combined. Seven million people uh, under you know, President Biden's uh, administration. So I'm not sure that I heard enough from him to change the minds of the American voter. I see. Yeah, I've heard uh, the phrase, there was definitely a lot of trade, bl uh, blame traded, and I've heard this, uh, uh, the sentence even a lot of symbolism, but no, no, no new ideas here. So how do you think this face-off between those two was received by the Hispanic voters? Who won? Yeah, I, I think, you know, Hispanic voters certainly are watching this. All American voters are watching this. And, and, and at this juncture, Evelyn, I think that uh, both Republicans and Democrats are are equally responsible for the situation down at the border. Uh, the time to affix blame, uh, that has passed. It, it, we need to get past the finger pointing. Um, you know, we need real solutions that will solve this issue. Uh, the American people deserve it, and the American economy demands it. Uh, the time to bring people together is upon us. We need a leader that will reach across the aisle and find solutions that are effective and sustainable 
for the good of the American people. Hmm. Just quickly, in a few seconds before we go here, you talk about real solutions. So what about the bipartisan bill? What's your reaction to Biden's invite to work with Trump? You know, again, I think the drama continues, the theatrics continue. Uh, both of these leaders, um, regardless of who ends up at the White House, both of them need to put partisan politics aside. We need to see leadership coming out of Washington that will bring, you know, both parties together and find solutions that are effective. Uh, if we continue with the theatrics, if we continue with the drama, uh, this is only going to get worse. And, uh, and unfortunately, uh, it will be a deciding factor uh, in the next uh, presidential election. I think Super Tuesday is going to be very telling. And I suspect that immigration will continue to be the top issue uh, in the minds of the American voter. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Javier Palomares. I really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. The Georgia House passed a bill yesterday that would require the state's police and sheriff's departments to help identify, arrest, and detain illegal immigrants for deportation. That's after the murder of nursing student sparked national outrage and calls for stricter immigration laws. Police have accused a Venezuelan man of killing Lakin Riley on the University of Georgia campus. Authorities say Jose Ibarra illegally entered the U.S. in 2022. The Georgia bill would require local law enforcement agencies to work with U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The measure now moves to the state Senate for more debate. And the Senate yesterday approved a short-term stopgap spending bill to avert a partial government shutdown. This after the Republican-controlled House backed it with less than 36 hours before funding would have begun to run out. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the vote. The bill passed the Senate in a bipartisan vote. The yeas are 77, the nays are 13, and the bill is passed. And we'll now go to President Biden's desk for signing into law. It will set deadlines to fund one part of the government by March 8th and the other portion by March 22nd. In a statement, Biden said the passage was good news for Americans because it avoids a damaging shutdown, but added, this is a short-term fix, not a long-term solution. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer expressed gratitude for the deal. When we pass this bill, we will have, thank God, avoided a shutdown with all its harmful effects on the American people. Earlier on Thursday, the House approved the short-term stopgap measure in a 320-99 to 99 vote. Some Republican lawmakers were critical of the spending bill approval. It's just more of the same. I mean, people kind of grow accustomed to, um, you know, Washington doing what Washington does. In this game, you got to stack up your fights. you got to stack up your strategies. And, um, and uh, it's something that's what we accomplished here. I'm going to say the same thing I've always said. Republicans and Democrats alike are spending too damn much, period. The extension buys Congress more time to agree on funding for the full fiscal year that began October 1st. Even with passage of Thursday's temporary funding bill, Congress still faces potential battles during the next few years over funding levels for many programs that conservatives want to pare back. House Speaker Mike Johnson had been pressured by some Republicans to use a shutdown as a bargaining chip. This to force Democrats to accept provisions to restrict the flow of illegal migrants across the U.S.-Mexico border. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And up next, a proposal for billions of dollars in frozen Russian assets to fund Ukraine's war efforts. An expert weighs in on the legality of this move. 
A former U.S. ambassador now admits to spying for Cuba's communist regime for decades. That's after pleading not guilty earlier. Hunter Biden testifies he was under the influence when he name-dropped his father, demanding payment from a Chinese business partner on WhatsApp. Takeaways from the first son's closed-door deposition after the transcript release. Welcome back. As the war rages on in the Gaza Strip, many residents struggle to find enough food to feed their families. In what was set to be a way to address their needs, the delivery of humanitarian aid turned tragic. And today's Jason Perry has the story. And a warning, this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. On Thursday, crowds of people swarmed humanitarian aid trucks as they entered the northern Gaza Strip. An Israeli government spokesperson explained. My understanding thus far is that uh, humanitarian aid vehicles entered the Gaza Strip and were overwhelmed by uh, people attempting to essentially loot. At some point, the trucks were overwhelmed and the people driving the trucks, which were Gazan civilian drivers, uh, plowed into um, the crowds of people. The Hamas-run health ministry reported 104 people were killed while trying to get humanitarian aid. Some witnesses said that Israeli troops opened fire on people who were waiting for the aid. Situation is surreal and chaotic. If aid is to come to us in this way, we do not want it. But the IDF says the tanks were there to secure a humanitarian corridor for the aid to be delivered. And they fired warning shots to try to disperse the crowd. When the hundreds became thousands and things got out, out of hand, the tank commander decided to retreat to avoid harm to the thousands of Gazans that were there. Department of State spokesperson Matthew Miller said an investigation is underway. Meanwhile, Israel, along with other countries, have been using other methods to get humanitarian aid into the Gaza Strip. This week, several countries, including Israel, the UAE, Jordan, France, and the United States, helped airdrop 160 packages of food and medical supplies to the residents of the southern Gaza Strip. This is where Israel may soon conduct ground operations in the southern Gaza city of Rafah if Hamas does not release the 100-plus hostages by Ramadan. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu gave an update on the latest ceasefire negotiations. It is too early to say, despite our will, if we will get to a deal in the coming days. But one thing is clear, we will not fold in front of the illusory demands from Hamas. Netanyahu has said that once Israel begins ground operations in Rafah, total victory will be weeks away. Jason Perry, NTD News. And a farewell service for Russian opposition figure Alexei Navalny is currently being held at the Soothe My Soros Orthodox Church. But attempts to hire a hearse to take Navalny's body to his funeral have been thwarted by unknown people. That's according to the dead Russian opposition leaders team. 
A Navalny spokeswoman says that drivers had been called by unknown people and threatened not to take Navalny's body anywhere, adding that she, she also said it, she was told no hearse agrees to take the body there. Navalny's team also says it encountered difficulty hiring a venue for his funeral. The funeral is scheduled today in Moscow. Navalny's team says many venues claimed that they were busy or refused the booking once Navalny's name was mentioned. The team had initially planned a public farewell and funeral yesterday for the late Russian opposition leader, but were told there were no available cemetery workers who could dig a grave. The European Union's top official suggested this week that frozen Russian assets should be used for joint military aid to Ukraine. But the proposal is sparking controversy. NTD's France correspondent David Vives spoke to the head of a think tank who says the move could violate international law. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen on Wednesday proposed using frozen Russian assets, some $285 billion, to purchase military supplies for Ukraine. There could be no stronger symbol and no greater use for that money than to make Ukraine and all of Europe a safer place to live. Western countries, including the European Union, froze nearly half of Moscow's foreign reserves when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022. Von der Leyen stressed the need to prepare for potential risks and to rebuild, replenish and modernize EU member states' armed forces. Repurposing Russia's frozen assets for military endeavors could be legally contentious, though. According to the head of a French economic think tank, von der Leyen's proposal is against the law in Western countries. If you own something and if somebody wanted to take it from you, you had to go through court, judgment, due process. It took forever. So it means that the biggest export of the West was a safety of ownership. And they are destroying it. He says the move would destroy investors' trust, which would prevent them from making deposits or purchase assets in certain countries. That could spell serious troubles for the country's economy. Then nobody of any country in the world will put any money anymore in reserves in our countries. Because if suddenly you are a Saudi, you put a lot of money in the French Central Bank, and then you have a coup, and then decide that your money is not your money anymore, the European Parliament passed a resolution on Thursday to provide new military assistance to Ukraine. Lawmakers have called on the EU to give Ukraine whatever it needs to defeat Russia. David Gives, NTD News, Paris. A former U.S. diplomat pleaded guilty yesterday to spying for Cuba. The former ambassador to Bolivia was arrested back in December. Victor Manuel Rocha was charged with passing information to the communist regime of Cuba for decades while working for the U.S. State Department. Besides the ambassadorship in Bolivia, he also held top posts in Argentina, Mexico, the White House, and the U.S. Interests Section in Havana. Rocha initially pleaded not guilty in a Miami court. Yesterday, he unexpectedly reversed course. The 73-year-old is charged with acting as a foreign agent and making false statements to obtain a U.S. passport. According to court documents, during meetings with an undercover FBI agent posing as Cuban intelligence, Rocha repeatedly referred to the U.S. as the enemy and praised Fidel Castro. And the transcript of Hunter Biden's closed-door deposition was released last night. The first son repeatedly denied under oath that his father ever financially benefited or participated in any of his business ventures. 
Republicans dug in on his work for foreign clients in countries like China and Ukraine. The House panel investigating President Biden and his family is searching for any evidence of corruption or influence peddling during Biden's time as VP. Entities Jeremy Sandberg has takeaways from Hunter Biden's deposition. Good morning. GOP investigators in a close to seven hour long private interview with Hunter Biden Wednesday asked about dinners and meetings with business partners where he put his father on speakerphone. The younger Biden said it was nothing nefarious, stating after the death of his mother and two siblings, calls in his family are always answered no matter what. Hunter Biden acknowledged his past drug addiction under questioning from Congressman Matt Gates. He told the panel he's been in recovery for over four years and pushed back, asking what it had to do with impeachment. The first son testified he was out of his mind, drunk, and probably high when he name-dropped his father in a 2017 WhatsApp message demanding payment from a Chinese business associate. He told lawmakers his father was not actually sitting next to him as he said in the text, and insisted he didn't recall sending it in the first place. Republicans drilled down on what they describe as selling the Biden brand to clients overseas. Hunter Biden's former business associate Devin Archer testified last year. The president's family sold the illusion of access to power in Washington. The panel asked Hunter Biden what value he brought to Ukrainian energy firm Burisma in 2014, and if the company wanted him on its board because his father was VP. He said he didn't think that would be a fair assessment, then talked about the scope of his resume. He also challenged Republicans to prove that he sent money to his father, other than a car loan repayment. When asked about a 2017 email proposing a $10 million stake in a firm be held for the big guy, Hunter Biden said it was a pie in the sky, and testified he does not remember fully reading or responding to the email. He says he only knows what was executed in the agreement, and stated it didn't involve his father. Hunter Biden also testified he does not remember bringing a laptop into a Delaware repair shop, stating if he needed repairs, he would have gone to the Apple store. House Oversight Chair James Comer says the next step in the GOP impeachment inquiry will be a public hearing with Hunter Biden. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Special Counsel Jack Smith is asking to move the trial date for the classified documents case against former President Trump to July 8th. District Judge Eileen Cannon will consider arguments and is expected to address the trial date at a hearing today. Trump's lawyers told the judge yesterday he believes he can't get a fair trial this year due to campaign obligations. Trump's team is suggesting an August 12th trial start date. An attorney for a co-defendant has proposed a September trial. Cannon has already pushed back several pretrial deadlines, but said she would wait until Friday to consider moving the scheduled May 20th trial. Trump has pleaded not guilty to 40 federal counts accusing him of retaining sensitive national security documents after leaving office and obstructing government efforts to retrieve them. He's also due to face trial in state court in New York starting March 25th in the so-called hush money case. It's not clear if the GOP frontrunners' other cases will go to trial before the November general election. And should Fannie Willis be disqualified? You can catch the arguments today and decide for yourself during our special coverage starting at 1 p.m. Eastern time right here on NTD News. On that note, we are also wrapping up our show right here, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast also at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. I'm Kevin Hogan.